0: back to the UConn Internal Medicine Podcast. My name is Rithika Campella and I'm a PGY2 here at UConn and I'll be your host for today's episode. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the UConn Department of Internal Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. That said, we're back with episode four of our cardiology miniseries, where we dive into some of the most clinically relevant conundrums you'll face and how to navigate them. Just as in the last episode, I'm joined by Dr. Erica Faircloth, a former chief of the program and a current second-year cardiology fellow at Hartford Hospital. Lipid management is an important tool in the primary prevention of cardiovascular events, including but not limited to MIs, CVAs, and PAD. We'll oftentimes see patients well-controlled on high-intensity statins or present with an acute NMI after having been on a high-intensity statin and second-line adjunctive therapy. Given this, it's important to know when to escalate medical management for higher-risk patients.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much again for having me. This is one of my favorite topics and a huge passion of mine, so I'm excited. So, Erica, I think this
0: would be a good time to just talk about the contribution of lipids to the ASCVD risk and, you know, what are some guideline-directed initiation of lipid-lowering medications? I guess we can kind of go through the USPSTF guidelines versus the AHA-ACC guidelines and talk about, you know, the utility of the coronary artery calcium score and what does primary versus secondary prevention look like?
1: Yeah, sure. So. Primary prevention, the USPSTF recommendations differ slightly from the ACC AHA recommendations. So, as an internal medicine resident, I think it's really important for you to understand the different guidelines and pick which one you want to follow and always stay consistent. As an internal medicine resident and now as a cardiology fellow, I always use the ACC AHA recommendations, and that's just for me. So, USPSTF recommends that men 35 years and older be screened for hyperlipidemia with a lipid panel and men. 20 to 35 years old, only if they have increased risk of CVD, they should be screened. For women, they give a grade A recommendation for screening women greater than 45 years with increased risk of CAD and a grade B recommendation for 20 to 45 years with increased risk. So using this information, they recommend calculating the ASCVD risk score, which we'll get into it in a second. Now, the ACC AHA recommends people 20 years and older not on lipid-lowering therapy to have a lipid profile in order to identify their risk and document their baseline LDL. In 2018, the ACC AHA came out with new cholesterol guidelines, and they added risk-enhancing factors. So that helps you if you have conversations with your patients who are on the cusp of needing a statin to push them one way or another. So this includes a family history of early ASCVD, so that's men less than 55 years of age or women less than 65, metabolic syndrome, an LDL between 160 and 189, CKD but not on dialysis or not kidney transplant patients, a history of premature menopause before age of 40 or a history of pregnancy-related conditions like preeclampsia, chronic inflammatory conditions such as psoriasis, HIV, or RA persistent primary hypertriglyceridemia greater than 175, an elevated high-sensitivity CRP greater than 2, an ABI less than 0.9, elevated ApoB of greater than 130, and a lipoprotein A greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter. So the USPSTF recommends calculating the 10-year ASCVD risk score on patients between 40 and 75. And if it's greater than 10%, they give a grade B recommendation for starting a low to moderate dose statin. And they recommend selective consideration of low, moderate dose statins with those with ASCVD scores between 7.5 and 10%, but usually like 10% is the cutoff that you'll you'll see. The ACCHA recommends that some high-risk groups get statins without calculation of the ASCVD score. So this includes high-intensity statin for anyone with an LDL greater than 190 milligrams per deciliter and at least a moderate intensity statin for diabetics 40 to 75 years old. Now, if they don't meet those two immediate statin indicators, then you can use the ASCVD risk calculator on anyone 40 to 75 years of age. They're considered low risk, less than 5%, borderline risk, 5 to 7.5%, intermediate risk, greater than 7.5%, and then high risk, greater than 20%. So low to borderline risk, you can use risk-enhancing factors that we talked about to discuss with the patient and work on lifestyle management, Intermediate risk patients or anyone with an ASCBD score greater than 7.5%, ACC AHA has a class 1 recommendations for at least moderate intensity statin, and then high-risk patients should get a high-intensity statin. So if the risk is uncertain, you can use a calcium score. So zero is really the only safe zone. Above that, it gives you more of a discussion point with your patient. You already know they have calcium in their arteries. So if it's greater than zero, there's calcium there. Many insurances actually do not cover the calcium scores. This is just kind of a side note. So you have to discuss with your patient because there's usually an out-of-pocket cost to actually having them do that. But a lot of patients are actually okay with that because it gives them a peace of mind and maybe they don't have to take medication if their score is zero. Secondary prevention is less controversial. Thank goodness. So secondary prevention is when someone already had an event and you're just trying to prevent another from happening. So these patients should be on a statin. So this includes ACS, history of MMI, coronaries, revascularization, CVA, TIA, PAD, and also aortic aneurysms. For those with prior ASCVD events and diabetes, I aim for an LDL of less than 55, and then without diabetes, less than 70. If they don't have the expected 50% decline in LDL with high-intensity statin and they're not meeting their goals, I recheck their LDL after initiation. I'll add Zedia, and after that, if not at goal, I'll add a PSK9 inhibitor.
0: So now that we have a better idea of the screening for lipid management, it's good to kind of go through our classes of lipid-lowering medications with specific indications and contraindications.
1: So statins are structural analogs of HMG-CoA reductase, which is the rate-limiting enzyme in cholesterol synthesis. So they decrease the cholesterol synthesis in the liver, increase synthesis of LDL receptors, and therefore increase uptake of circulating LDL. High-intensity statins, which really is just a atorvastatin 40 or 80 or rosuvastatin 20 or 40, are expected to decrease the LDL around 50% or so. Moderate intensity tends to reduce the LDL 30 to 49%, and then low intensity less than 30%. most common side effects are myalgias, and this occurs 1 to 5% in randomized control studies, but a little bit more in the observational studies, 5 to 10%, and that's probably what I see in my clinic as well predisposing risk factors for having myalgias include a lower bmi renal or liver or thyroid disorders alcohol use being asian and female sex to combat this trying out a different statin can actually be helpful or using a lower dose or every other day dosing and you really need to try at least two statins to document that they have intolerance to that and you should document the symptoms when they had the statin and then once they've discontinued off of that because in order to be approved a lot of the times, you need to make sure that they're actually intolerant to it. Now, if you add high-dose fibrates to a patient's regimen, they actually are much more likely to have the myalgias with the statins, so you can often adjust your doses of the statins when you do add the fibrates. Myositis or myopathy, which means they actually have concerning symptoms or objective weakness with CKs greater than the upper limit of normal, as well as rhabdomyolysis, which is CKs greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal with renal injury, only actually happens in less than 0.1% of patients. So it's not quite as common as we might think. And then statin-associated autoimmune myopathy, they have a specific antibody, the HMGCR antibody, super rare. Transaminitis with LFTs three times the upper limit of normal only occurs about 1% of the time and true hepatic failure less than 0.001%. So very, very unlikely. Nuance at diabetes is a hard one to discuss because it really depends on the population. About two, 0.2% per year at, are at risk of developing diabetes who are put on statins, but it seems like the patients who this develops in are predisposed to getting diabetes in the first place, and the, the statin kind of pushes them over the edge. Now, Zedia is another medication I use regularly. It inhibits intestinal cholesterol absorption, which decreases hepatic cholesterol, increases LDL receptors, and increases LDL uptake. It's relatively well-tolerated, and the main side effects really are GI-related. PSK9 inhibitors do a fantastic job in reducing LDL. They're monoclonal antibodies that bind to serine protease PSK9, which is a liver enzyme that degrades hepatocyte LDL receptors. Major side effects actually include nasopharyngitis, which is, is, is actually real. Um, <laughs> I had a patient with that the other day. Uh, injection site reactions, those are probably the big ones, and they're actually not as painful as you might think, and so patients actually tolerate the medicine quite well, and a lot of times the dosing, there's different dosing regimens, but most of them are every two weeks, which is actually very nice for patients. There are also bile acid sequestrants, fibrates, and phytosterols. They also mostly have GI side effects. Now, Vasepa. This is another medication that actually has been having some pretty good studies. It's a purified ethyl ester of EPA, so like a really, really super fish oil that you can't get over the counter. It can be added to maximally tolerated statin to reduce the risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, coronary vascularization, and unstable angina requiring hospitalization in adult with a triglyceride level greater than 150 and established CVD or diabetes with two or more risk factors. And it can also be used as an adjunct in patients with severe hypertriglyceridemia with triglycerides greater than 500.
0: I guess next now we can talk about the differences in management between hypertriglyceridemia and hypercholesterolemia, because you usually think that both of them go hand in hand or have some effect on one another.
1: So when we think about these things, I want to point out it's important to understand the secondary causes to things like elevated LDL because you can actually directly address these, and this is also with triglycerides as well. So examples of secondary causes of elevated LDL include hypothyroidism, poorly controlled diabetes, nephrotic syndrome, and medications like amiodarone, glucocorticoids. And secondary causes of hypertriglyceridemia include diabetes, excessive alcohol intake, hypothyroidism, obesity, increased sugar intake, and medications again. Glucocorticoids, protease inhibitors, and estrogens. Triglycerides greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter are independently associated with increased ASCVD, but it's really uncertain of whether or not decreasing them actually decreases the risk. So, the cornerstone of management for hypertriglyceridemia is lifestyle changes. Fibrates can decrease triglyceride levels by 30 to 50% and are indicated when triglyceride levels are greater than 500. During pregnancy, your triglycerides actually rise, but usually not more than 150 or so, and they do return to normal after delivery. So that's just something to keep in mind. There are actually advanced centers, and one of them is on our system as well, that performs lipophoresis for triglycerides, LDL, and lipoprotein A if therapies are not meeting goal.
0: One thing that we don't really discuss in internal medicine are just special considerations for women of childbearing age and in the peripartum area in general, because we don't really manage at least the latter half of those patients very closely. So if you could just walk us through some of those special considerations, it would be quite helpful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple special populations that are worth mentioning. So patients greater than 75 years of age can continue on a statin for secondary prevention if they've been tolerating it already. However, it's reasonable to forgo initiating or stopping a statin if their functional status is declining, if they're super fragile, if they have lower life expectancy, especially if you're thinking primary prevention, because you're thinking primary prevention. Now, in terms of pregnancy, so there's no evidence that statins are hazardous during pregnancy, but they also haven't been proven safe either. So they are relatively contraindicated during pregnancy. Women should be counseled on reliable contraception while taking a statin, and if you can, discontinue the statin within one to two months before pregnancy is attempted. However, if you have a woman of childbearing age requiring a statin, they are probably already a very high risk patient, so you're going to probably want to seek guidance at that point with a cardiologist or a lipidologist. Now, that being said, vasepa is safe in pregnancy, and fibrates are also safe in the second trimester and often are used.
0: And then finally, we've been discussing this kind of sprinkled into some of the previous episodes, but now we'll go into what I like to call the EBM segment. So a portion of the podcast where we discuss evidence-based medicine and how that impacts our day-to-day management of these patients. So if you could just walk us through some of the landmark trials which drive some of this therapy, that would be great.
1: Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So there are a lot of trials in the lipid field starting back in like the 1980s or so lipid study, that's what the name of the study was, which showed that pravastatin reduced mortality in CHD and overall mortality in comparison to placebo. So we started really making headway at that point. The CARDS trial published in the Lancet in 2004 was a double-blinded, multi-center, randomized control trial looking at 2,838 patients between ages 40 and 75 years of age who had diabetes, who also had hypertension, retinopathy, microalbuminuria, or macroalbuminuria, who were smokers. They could not have a history of ASCVD. So they randomized these patients to either having placebo or receiving atorvastatin 10 milligrams daily. The primary endpoint was time to first occurrence of acute coronary heart disease events, coronary revascularization, and stroke. The trial was actually stopped early due to benefit. There's a 37% relative risk reduction for atorvastatin 10 milligrams daily on major cardiac events with a p-value of 0.001 and an all-cause mortality relative risk reduction of 27% with a p-value of 0.059, decrease in ACS by 35%, stroke by 48%, and coronary revascularization by 31%, and this was regardless of LDL level. Another old study from 2004, the PROVE-IT trial, showed significantly reduced CVD events following MI with high-intensity statin atorvastatin 80 over pravastatin 40, so that's when we start thinking about the high-intensity statins, and then in Jupiter, came out in 2008, which showed that patients with normal LDLs but elevated high-sensitivity CRP had a reduced incidence of cardiovascular events with rosuvastatin. The IMPROVE-IT trial, this was published in NAGM in 2015, was a double-blinded randomized controlled trial of over 18,000 patients who were hospitalized for ACS and had an elevated LDL greater than 50 measured within 24 hours of their ACS. And patients were randomized to either the control group with placebo plus simvastatin 40 daily or the treatment of Zetia 10 milligrams plus the simvastatin 40 milligrams daily. And overall, the Zetia added to the simvastatin in these patients reduced the composite cardiovascular death, MI, and non-fatal stroke powered by reduction in MI and ischemic stroke. So that's where we start talking about those additional therapies like Zetia. The GLAGOV study looked at one of the PSK9 inhibitors versus placebo at 76 weeks, and showed a decreased plaque volume and plaque regression. And then the four-year trial looked at over 27,000 subjects with clinically evident CV disease with an LDL greater than 70. And they found a 15% reduction in primary endpoint, which was a composite of cardiovascular death, MI, stroke, or hospitalization from coronary revascularization or unstable angina. There's also a 20% reduction in secondary endpoint of cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke. Lastly, the Odyssey trial showed another one of the PSK9 inhibitors, showed a 15% reduction in primary endpoint of composite death from coronary heart disease, non fatal MI, fatal or non fatal ischemic stroke, or unstable angina requiring hospitalization. EVOPAX was a randomized control study adding PSK9 inhibitor early in the setting of ACS in addition to high-intensity statin and found that it led to a substantial risk in LDL cholesterol levels without increased harm. And then PACMAN ami showed compared to placebo adding a PSK9 inhibitor every two weeks within 24 hours of PCI for acute myocardial infarction resulted in a greater reduction in plaque burden and plaque regression at 52 weeks in the non culprit vessel, which when they're added to the high-intensity statin. And so that's where we start to think about starting these therapies a lot earlier than just waiting till outpatient. So we start the process a lot of times in the hospital.
0: Thank you so much for teaching us, Erica. Understanding the ramifications of suboptimal lipid management and the difference in guideline recommendations will help us take care of our low, high, and moderate risk patients in and outpatient. Again, that's all we have for you guys today. Stay curious and until next time.